we are very glad that you're here, and we hope that this place feels like home to you or in time feels like home to you. So welcome to worship this morning. We're going to start um, with the scripture, Psalm 50, verses 1 through 6, which says, The Mighty One, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to where it sets. From Zion, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes and will not be silent. A fire devours before him and around him a tempest rages. He summons the heavens above and the earth that he may judge his people. Gather me to, the, to his consecrated people who made a covenant with me by a sacrifice. And the heavens proclaim his righteousness for he is a God of justice. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this place. We thank you that you rule over this earth, that you rule over our lives. God, we thank you that we can trust you. And we pray as we put this service into your hands that you would bless our time together, that you would be in our worship, that you would bless Pastor Jason as he brings his word. God, that you would help us to open our hearts to you and hear what it is that you have to say to us. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Let's stand together as we say at the Apostles' Creed what it is that we believe. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the dead. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, in Christ's universal church, the communion of all believers, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's worship together.
Jesus, we thank you this morning, Lord. We thank you for who you are, Lord. We thank you that you are here with us. Lord, we come to you this morning lifting and praising your name, lifting you high for you are exalted. Lord, we rejoice in who you are. We love you and we thank you for you are good. We thank you for your son, for your promises. We thank you for your word. God, I pray that we would remain faithful and that your truth would be revealed. That we would seek you with all of our hearts. And that as we do that, your peace would invade us. And your truth would set us free. God, I pray for hearts that are searching for you here this morning. God, so many things pull at our minds and our hearts. And they pull for our attention. So many things offer to dull our senses. And have us check out of our situations. And that is so tempting. But God, I pray that we would not fall into that temptation to numb or distract. But that we would pursue life to its fullest in you. Jesus, I pray that you would empower us to live as you have created us to live. For greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. And I pray that we would live as children of God, free, powerful, at peace, confident in who we are in you. God, I pray for healing for this body today. I pray provisions financially, Lord God, for resources. I pray for visions here for your people. I pray for open doors, and I pray for a breaking of addictions. Lord God, I pray for a breaking over what was spoken over someone here today that still clings to them but is a lie. God, I pray for families, for marriages, and I pray for leading by your spirit alone. God, invade our church here this morning with your presence. And speak to us this morning. We love you and we praise your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Take a moment and greet somebody this morning.
Uh, we're so glad that you're here. If we haven't met, my name is Jason. And we as a church uh, here at FDC, we uh, financially and prayerfully support more than 30 missionaries and outreach organizations, both locally and around the world. We are part of the uh, Assemblies of God, and they said AGWM, that stands for Assemblies of God World Missions. And uh, World Missions and Missions is a passion in the Assemblies of God. It's a passion in our church. Uh, we have We have missionaries around the world from people who came to church here. Uh, it's been part of our uh, legacy as a church, and so we want to continue that, but we want to let you know what it means to be part of uh, missions. We, we support uh, missions, and we talk to them quite regularly, and we have a bunch of missionaries' pictures and information in the hallway next to that big map that's out in the hallway. I encourage you to stop by and see letters that we get um, from them that just tell us what's going on. It can be a lonely existence to be in certain parts of the world, and uh, so we try to make sure that we contact people to encourage them. But you can partner with us. One of the things that we do is we we support them financially. We've made a commitment to do them. And I don't know if you know, but the cost of goods in our world lately has gone up. Guessing you have figured that out too. But that's that's true of our missionaries too. And so uh, the dollar doesn't always go as far as it used to. But we want to continue to find ways to make it possible for our missionaries to be on the ground in these countries and in these cities and in these villages. And so the way there are several ways that you could do that. There, missions has a lot of different, I call them buckets, uh, ways that you could help us and support. The first thing is uh, you could make a faith promise. And a faith promise is something where you pray, that you ask God to financially bless you in a way over and above what you normally do. And then you, you say, Lord, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pledge, or I'm going to, I hate the word pledge. Lord, I'm going to commit to what you give me extra, I'm going to give that to missions. And so when you do that, that helps us uh, both re- uh, support more missionaries, but also... Uh, support locally because you, you help us fund what we send out. And so the first thing is that so those face promise giving, uh, that missionary giving, that supports their monthly uh, budgets. But also sometimes they have projects that they like to do. And so there are, there are times where every, actually every month as a pastor, I get an email or multiple emails that say, here in place X, fill in the blank, we're trying to do this. And this will help us reach our city. Or we're trying to uh, 
have a church building. We've been meeting in homes and now we want, there's tons of projects that happen around the group. Sometimes we get, would you send a team of construction workers to place X, um, to let us, to, to help us build a building or build a, a community center in the village. There are projects you can do. So you can support their monthly budgets. You could support projects. And then there are uh, initiatives like human trafficking. Uh, that you could help us support our, support our Builders International and other organizations inside the Assemblies of God that fight initiative or that work in initiatives to fight pro, uh, specific problems around the world. There's a number of ways that you could do it. And some of you are really passionate about supporting missionaries in their monthly budget. And some of you are really passionate about saying, I want to participate in a project. Or I want to, this initiative, for me, human trafficking is like a a hot button issue. Like this is something that really, like, grips my heart. And so when I, when I go to hear them talk about uh, the the initiatives that they're fighting, and they talk about fighting uh, human trafficking, I'm in. Like, what do you want? I'll, like, if you need me to donate blood, I'll do it. Um, and so whatever you're passionate about, there are a number of ways for you to feed into your passions to support what's happening in the Assemblies of God around the world. And so we want to just want to make you aware that we do about, about five to seven Sundays a year we focus on missions. And so it's important for us to remind and talk about, and there are some new people. Maybe you've never heard our missions uh, participation, and so we want you to do that. Now, if you want to contribute to missions, there are a number of ways you can give here at FDC, and there uh, on the slide you can give online. You could give in the boxes that are at the back doors or around on the the tables, and you'll just mark your gift that week, missions. Now, missions giving is above and beyond our tithe. It's not a, well, I usually give a certain amount of money to the church, and so now I'll give that money to missions. Missions is is above and beyond. We still want to support what we're doing locally, and we're asking God to provide. This isn't from, typically this doesn't come from you just saying, I'm going to make it, uh, I'm going to do it all myself. This comes from God's provision and then us sacrificing and being obedient with that provision to do that. And so you can give in a number of ways. I think that's all we're going to talk about. Every dollar you give to missions uh, over and above your tithes helps build the kingdom here and around the world. A few other announcements I want to make. If you're new with us this morning, uh, my, uh, well, again, my name is Jason. It's nice to meet you. I uh, encourage you to visit the information center before you leave today. We've got a free gift for you. Everybody say free gift. Oh, those are my favorite kinds of gifts. I don't know if it's a gift if it's not free, but uh, we've got a free gift for you. We'd love to hear your story. Find out how you heard about our church and see what we can do uh, to serve you. We're glad that you're here. Uh, in your bulletin this morning, if you've got a bulletin on your way in, there are address forms. We'd love for you to fill it out and let us know that we have your correct address. Now, some of you may be saying, I've lived in the same house for 40 years, and I've come to church here for 40 years. You know where you, we live. That, if that's the case, I'm so glad that you filled out that new address form to just confirm that you haven't moved. So uh, that's a little bit of a hint that says if you filled this out before, it would really help us be confident that when we send you a card or uh, a, an encouragement of note or we send your end of year uh, tax information, we're sending it to the right place. So that would be helpful. So please make a point to... Uh, fill that out. You can put that also in the offering uh, boxes. Last announcement I have is men's breakfast this Saturday. Uh, 
8.30 in the morning. If you uh, want breakfast, if you like food, I encourage you to come. If you like encouragement, I encourage you to come. We've got a great uh, guest coming to, to share an encouraging story. We've been talking about believing in the miraculous at our church, and Saturday is another example of the miraculous. So come on out if you're, uh, if you're uh, men's breakfast, 8.30. I think that's all the announcements I have t- at this point. I encourage you to stand. We're going to continue in worship, and I'll be back in just a few minutes. the voices. 
pray with me this morning? God, I thank you so much for how much you love us. The the vastness and grandness of your existence is so far beyond our comprehension, and yet you choose to desire intimacy with us. So God, we honor you today. Jesus, we honor you and we worship you. We ask that your presence would be here in in a real way and that it would be your words that go forth this morning. I pray that you'd be with the kids in their room, that they would experience a, a sense of your presence. God, we've been talking about the miraculous at our church. We're asking for the miraculous things of your spirit to happen. Pray that people would be healed. I pray that finances would be uh, enhanced. I pray that relationships would be restored. And I pray that people would find Jesus and they would find hope and they would find purpose in a very real way. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Children, you are dismissed to Kids Church. And we hope you have a great time up there. Have fun. Not too much fun. But just a little bit of fun. While they're going, check this out. Well, good morning. Again, if we haven't met, my name is Jason, and so thrilled and honored that you would choose to spend a little bit of your time uh, with us on this national holiday. Uh, I would I would venture to guess you all have plans for later today, it, uh, and none of us will be around TVs at about 6:35 this evening because there's like a parade. No, never mind. We all know what's ha- what's happening today. I very specifically wore neutral colors today. I'm not necessarily, I'm wearing blue because it's red and gold at the Super Bowl today, and I don't really care who wins, but I do know I'm not rooting for the referees. I didn't wear, Dave wore black and white. I did not wear black and white. I I have a a love-hate relationship with officials. I've had this since I was just a little kid, and if you referee games... I apologize for my behavior at some of your events. Since I was a little kid, my father will tell you that I never committed a foul on the basketball court in my life and that every time the official called it, they were wrong. Some of the parents who also parent kids on Belvedere High School may feel that I still feel the same way uh, even today about our team. But... uh, Officials are human. 
And that drives me nuts. Because I have this expectation of perfection. Anybody else have an expectation of perfection in other people's work? Sometimes we expect ourselves to be perfect, and we're not always fair to ourselves, but we're really unfair sometimes to other people who in their uh, desire to do well, but we just, it's really easy to pinpoint when people aren't perfect. Today we're going to continue, we're going to conclude our series. If you haven't been with us, we've been working through a, a, a short series on the Sermon on the Mount, which is in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. It's uh, the first major discourse that Matthew speaks about from Jesus. And it's where Jesus defines what it means to be a person who is a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew chapter 4, uh, Jesus tells his disciples to tell their world that the kingdom of heaven has come near. And then in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus starts to talk about what it means to be a person who lives out the values and the ethics of God's kingdom. In many ways, this is Jesus' expansion on the Ten Commandments. And there's a ton of hyperlinks in, in these first few chapters, or in these chapters 5 through 7 in Matthew, hyperlinks to Old Testament passages. Jesus is teaching uh, his view on a lot of the things that were in Israel's history. And the, as you know, it's not a surprise, this is probably the most talked about thing in Jesus's teaching or in his uh in the gospels is the sermon on the mount. It's been thought about forever. Last week I t- I gave you some thoughts from a modern day theologian or a biblical scholar named N.T. Wright. And today we're going to go a little bit further back to a person in history. We're going to talk uh I'm going to share a little bit of what uh Augustine thought. Now Augustine was a was a guy who lived in the 300s. None of us were there. I don't care how seasoned, that's a word I like to use for people who have been around for a little longer than others. I don't care how seasoned you are, you haven't been around for 1,800 years. But for more than 1,800 years, people have been talking about the Sermon on the Mount and trying to ascertain what Jesus meant and how we can live out that ideal that Jesus presented. Jesus talks, even in the Sermon on the Mount, he even talks about perfection. And what does it mean to try to be perfect? If you're an official, that's really hard. I'll help you point it out for you. But for all of us, perfection is this standard that we try to get to sometimes, but it's elusive. We don't ever hit it. And so if you look at the 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 English, and you try to live out the Sermon of the Mount on the Mount literally, it can be very difficult. And so we're looking for themes. We're looking for uh, ways that we can be aided by the Spirit of God to live out what Jesus called us to live out, because we can't do it on our own. And so uh, uh, Augustine, he, uh, like I said, he lived in the 300s. Um, he was a prolific writer. People will say that he basically wrote what is the equivalent of a 300-page book every year for like 50 years in a row. And this was at the time before computers. When I was a sophomore in high school, no, uh, yeah, sure, sophomore, junior, senior, one of those years. 
Maybe it was the second time I was a sophomore. No, I didn't go through. I didn't fail sophomore year, I promise. I had to write a 12-page paper. And my parents, my family, we had not purchased a, a personal computer till that, at that point. So I had to type this 12-page paper on my father's typewriter in his church office. Some of you have had this experience. And so the trouble, the computers are wonderful, until you need them to work in the way you want them to work, and they don't, and then you hate them. But uh, this typewriter, I remember typing, and several of the pages, I got about three-quarters of the way through the page and missed a word or misspelled something. And rip, start over that page. Perfection is difficult. And so uh, we, uh, we, there have, when you think about Augustine writing 300-page uh, books on non-computer, he's writing it by hand. This is a ton of work that this guy did. He had a lot of thoughts, and he had major thoughts on the Sermon on the Mount. And he, his, in the Sermon on the Mount, he really focused on and saw that Jesus, Jesus was redefining justice in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus was giving a new barometer on justice in the Sermon on the Mount. See, today I want to talk a little bit about what it means to examine justice in the, in the kingdom of heaven. And justice in the kingdom of heaven is a little different. So let, before I get too deep out away from my notes, let's read what it says in Matthew 5, 38 through 42. Jesus said, you have heard it said, uh, uh, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anybody slaps you on the right cheek, turn them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand, uh, hand over your cloak as well. By the way, a lot of translations don't say shirt there. They say inner garment. If they want to sue you all the way to where you have no clothes on your back, give them your outer garment as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the person who asks from you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Augustine looks at this and he postulates that true justice is not merely about external actions, but it's more about the disposition of one's heart. He argued that Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount call for a righteousness that springs from a pure heart and a genuine love for God and for others. And that this righteousness surpasses the, the legalistic righteousness of the Pharisees and the demands for, and it demands an inner, a radical inner renewal. Justice is at the, at, at the core of the world's systems of appropriate and justifiable relations between people. Beyond every attempt, behind every attempt to define justice is a standard. What's the standard of justice in the United States? It's the Constitution. In England, it's the Magna Carta. In, uh, Germany has some document that I'm not even going to pretend to try to uh, pronounce, but every society has a legal standard. It, it's, a, 
it's a, it's, it helps create society. It helps form uh, the way people relate to each other, and that decorum happens. Germans say they have a society ruled by law, whereas in England and in the United States, we say that we have a rule of law. There's a rule of law. There's a standard for how we engage each other. We're not supposed to do certain things and, uh, to each other, and laws in the Constitution set that up. Justice is used for conditions and behaviors that conform to the standards or laws at work in a particular society. And this isn't new. Ancient Israel had a standard. It was the Torah. It was the Ten Commandments and the Law of Moses that determined how they engaged each other, what was right, what was wrong. It had, uh, it was, but the thing about the Torah of Moses and the Law of Moses and the Ten Commandments is very different in one way than ours. You see, it had a divine origin. The Torah came from God. Israel's sense of justice conformed to the will of God. Their civic heritage was and is found in the Torah story. In the Torah's formation and in the Torah's adaptation. And these adaptations and these rulings of interpretation were historically made by judges and by rabbis. And that their judgments were considered divine. It was hard to argue because it had come from God. And so Jesus comes, uh, uh, well, it was hard to argue with these people because when someone says, God says this, it's really hard to argue with them. And so Jesus is being somewhat radical here when he says, you've heard it say, and then he's quoting the Old Testament. Because he's combating, he's going against the idea, you've heard it said that God says this. And then Jesus says, you've heard it say that God says this. But let me tell you what God really wants. He begins to unpack a little bit of the idea. Justice in the Old Testament was ruled, was garnered, was based on retribution and uh, equal fairness an eye not for a chopped off head that wasn't the trade it was an eye for an eye tooth for a tooth and so Jesus comes and he um, changes this but he's quoting here from Exodus 21 and I think we have it we can put it up there but if there's a if there is a serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for wound, uh, bruise for bruise. It prioritized that punishment should be equal to the crime. That's, a, that's an important rule that we still have today, that there should be equality for the crime. And it leads to two fundamental rules of law. By making laws, punishment is moved out of the private sphere and into the hands of the public. Sometimes if you're the hurt individual, and and God understood this, if you're the hurt individual and you get to assess the penalty, you're not going to be that very objective. Like, 
I'm sure none of this happens to you. I have specific phone charger right next to the table by my chair in, in our room. My reading chair has a charger next to it, so I can charge my phone. And if I'm sitting on that chair and enjoy sleeping, I can use the flashlight on that phone and I can read. And the system works very well until I sit down. Usually I, this will happen when I sit down and it's dark and the charger's gone. In that moment, my desire for retribution might not be equal to the crime. Because I want mm. mm. I get a little, mm. And so we take the idea of retribution, we take the idea of judgment and punishment out of the private sphere, we put it into public. And it's here that Jesus steps into this legal history. His teachings on justice on the Sermon on the Mount are both a revelation of God's intent, and, and, and in many ways, they're a new constitution of kingdom society. Instead of the requirement of retribution, Jesus reveals that grace, love, and forgiveness can reverse the dangers of retribution, and even more, they can create a new society. The rule of law that we cherish in our society, the rule of law that we go to, that we find security in, that we know we're going to be okay, the one that just guards us, that finds its equivalent in the kingdom of heaven with grace, love, and forgiveness. We know we have, we're confident that we're going to be treated fairly because of the rules of our country. We depend on the security and the rules and the system. And in God's kingdom, God's saying, Jesus is saying, here's what you should depend on in, in God's society. Love, forgiveness, and grace. In his writings, Augustine saw these teachings of turning the other cheek, of loving one's enemies, of forgiving those who wrong us as expressions of divine mercy and as essential aspects of living out justice in cor- according to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, he saw that Jesus is basically calling for... Uh, per, uh, he saw that Jesus is basically calling for a different way of living on the Sermon on the Mount. And he, he almost said, Jesus calling for perfection. He's asking us for perfect people. And he knew that perfection wasn't possible. But he suggests that Jesus is not demanding an unsustainable standard, but rather he's inviting us. Jesus is offering us an invitation to strive for moral excellence and and spiritual maturity with the help of divine grace. Augustine says, Jesus is inviting you into a new way. Where you don't necessarily hold people to the letter of the law, but you understand that people aren't perfect and you show them mercy and grace and forgiveness and love. And when you do, you're not just exonerating the person as much as you're displaying the new way of living to the world. It becomes less about what the other person deserves. And more about you wanting them to see God's love for them. That's different. Jesus 
ends the parable found in Mosaic law, which is in Deuteronomy 19. And it says, show no pity. Deuteronomy 19.21 says, show no pity. When it's talking, and it's talking about dispensing justice. And Jesus rips that up, almost rips that out. And says, he replaces it with an order to be merciful. Here's the thing. The law says, show no pity. You have every right to show no pity, but choose to show mercy. He doesn't say those things that are illegal now are legal. He doesn't say abuse people. He doesn't say wrong people. He says, but, but what he says is, when you're wronged, choose to show a kingdom uh, justice instead of a personal justice. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a World War II G, uh, German theologian, he had real problems with the Nazi regime. He was eventually killed. And um, he wrote that Jesus is drawing us into a new society, the kingdom society, by releasing his community from the practical and legal order, from the national form of the people of Israel, and making it into what it is to become. The community of the faithful that is not bound by political or national ties. Jesus, Bonhoeffer says Jesus is creating a new society here. One that works above any civic idea. One that says, yeah, I have the right to get this. But I choose to love, forgive, and give grace to the person I have the right to get that from. Jesus is teaching a kingdom ethic. And the kingdom will not trade in retribution. Because people in the kingdom, and this is, this is an idea of what will become. I'm, I'm, I'm presenting a, a picture of the future. The kingdom does, will not trade in retribution. Because the people who live in God's kingdom will live justly and will lovingly and will be peaceful with one another. And Jesus understands that and he's calling us into that future reality now. Jesus' ethic here is shaped by, by the Shema, the, the ancient Israel daily prayer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your body, and your mind. Boy, I got that one wrong. And love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love people. Scott McKnight calls that the Jesus Creed. Those who live out this ethic will love even those who out, dish out injustices. A person shaped by the Jesus Creed responds to injustice not with retaliation or vengeance, but with grace, with compassion, with abundant mercy in a way that actually reverses the injustice. In other words, citizens of the kingdom of heaven dwell in an alternative society that protests systematic injustice and embodies alternative love. We are to respond to evil by doing good. When we respond to evil with evil, we continue the cycle. Because when we do that, when we get our own justice and punish the other, they're out for retribution. And then they get their retribution. And you know what happens after that? We get our retribution. And they get their retribution. And we, and it just goes on and on and on and on. If you've ever been in a fight with a family member, 
eventually one person has to say, all right, this has got to stop. I got to be the, I don't want to be the one to say I'm sorry first. Anybody in here really want to be the one to say they're sorry first? Not a lot of hands. Only me, I guess. No. Something inside of us says, you know what? This relationship is more important than this fight, so I have to prioritize the relationship, and i got to lay down what I feel strongly about. That is justice in the kingdom society. It doesn't usually come natural for us to say, I don't care what I like. I want you to have, you know what, you're right. When you totally wronged me, that was okay. Now, there's a little bit of nuance here. Jesus is not saying, here's what I want you to do. Allow yourself to be abused regularly. Jesus is not saying, well, here's what I need you to do. Stay in unsafe relationships because that's what the kingdom says. No. No, for your personal safety, get out of the abusive relationship. And in, the, in your mind and in your heart, you ask God to help you forgive that person. It doesn't mean you would jeopardize yourself, but it means you're not also not out to, like, get even. So in this passage, Jesus gives four transforming initiatives or behaviors, and I want to look at them before we're done today. First, Jesus says, turn the other cheek. The concept of turning the other cheek is a call to nonviolence. It's a call to patience. It's a call to forgiveness. Jesus was teaching his followers, he's teaching us to respond to hostility or or aggression with love and non-retaliation rather than responding in kind or seeking revenge. That's really hard for me to come to peace with, especially as a sports fan. See, I, I have a sense of justice. It's the reason I struggle with referees, because I want it to be right every time. It's probably not fair. I also have an opinion of what I think is right. Also, probably not fair. But when I see someone wronged, oh boy, do I start to get fired up. In fact, I think I get more fired up if I see somebody else get wronged than most of the time, even if I get wronged myself. Everything inside of me wants to bring justice for that person. I'll get them back for you. It's not my job. And it's not a kingdom mindset. Turning the other cheek is a practical way of saying, all right, something really, really passionate happens, and you take a breath before you respond. Something inside of you, the Spirit speaks to you and says, respond on my behalf instead of on your behalf. 
and instead of seeking uh, revenge. It's a challenging teaching that calls us to respond to mistreatment with grace and a commitment to peace. It's challenging. Think about who he's talking to. We're going to highlight this a few times through these examples. He's talking to people in Israel who are right now uh, their homeland, their promise, that what they take nationalistic pride in is occupied by the Romans. And everything in their society says the Romans got to be kicked out of here. I don't care what they get, just get out. And Jesus says, when someone wrongs you, turn the other cheek. That is a difficult teaching. We, we easy it. We make it easy now. It's not easy. When you're in the middle of the fight with someone and you're really passionate and you know you're right, choose the other person over your right. But that's what it is to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And what happens when that happens? Walls start to crumble. Reconciliation and peace starts to become possible because you've entered, you've brought a different step into the journey. You've stopped the cycle of evil for evil, evil for evil, evil for evil. Sometimes it causes people to stop and walk away because they're not at a place where they could come to do what you just did. And they're confused because they can't really respond in evil to your kindness. Jesus rejected violence as a way to deal with personal friends, with conflicts or assaults, and as a response to the humiliations of Roman subjection. He rejected violence when it was proposed by James and John as a response to the Samaritans who rejected his his ministry. He rejected it again when swords were flashed at the time of his arrest, saying that all who take the sword will perish by the sword. He rejected it when he could have called legions of angels as he headed to the cross. In the way he lived and he died, we see that Jesus saw violence had no part in the way we as citizens of heaven should live. That's tough teaching. Second, give them your cloak as well. Here, Jesus offers a radical approach to dealing with conflict and injustice. He teaches that we should not only give what is demanded, but to go even further by volunteering volunteering more than is asked. In the context of Jesus' time and culture, a person's outer garment, typically a coat or a cloak, was significant. It wasn't just a piece of clothing, but it was often their most valuable possession, especially if they were poor. By advising them to give the coat as well as the shirt or the undergarment, Jesus is suggesting this extreme form of generosity and selflessness. Can you see how that might be difficult to accept? It challenges our our human tendency towards self-preservation and retaliation. It promotes a mindset of abundance and trust in God's provision, even in the face of adversity or injustice. Jesus is saying... Put more trust in God's economy than you put in your own. Money's funny. We all will give up it pretty easily 
to trade for other things. But it's often the thing we find security in as well. So Jesus is saying, don't find your security in your own savings account, in your own possessions. Find it in God's kingdom. And when you live out God's kingdom, his provision will be there for you. By advising his followers to give willingly uh, and generously, Jesus is emphasizing or, uh, the prioritizing of relationships and reconciliation over material possessions and personal rights. The things you have and the things you feel strongly to and the things you deserve, choose people over that. I got to tell you, that's not easy to preach. I want to be a person who chooses people over possessions. I want to be the person who chooses others over my own self-security. But the things I find security in, as I see them going down, it becomes much more difficult to be generous. But it's in those moments that my commitment to the kingdom is shown. Third, go the second mile. We talked a little bit about this in youth recently. And so some of our students will recognize this story. According to Roman law, a soldier was permitted to stop anyone he passed and force them to carry his pack for one mile. A Roman soldier could tell anyone to carry their pack for a mile. Packs were usually about 60 to 70 pounds. As you can imagine, Jewish people at this time really resented Roman um, Involvement, they, they resented Roman uh, dominion, and they really resented Roman centurions telling them to carry their pack. And into this idea, into this rule, into this law, Jesus says, when they tell you to carry their pack, you can, they can only make you do it for one mile. Go two miles. In a society characterized by extreme economic exploitation and long economic depression of first century Palestine, this discipleship teaching is summoning God's people to offer justice through works of compassion towards the most economically vulnerable and oppressed. Jesus is talking to the most economically vulnerable and oppressed, and he's saying to those people, be super generous. Wait a minute. Shouldn't the teaching be to the Romans, drop your pack and carry the poor person's pack for a mile so that they get a break and then come back and get your own pack and keep going on your way? Nope. Jesus says in the kingdom, no matter what state you're in, be generous. Maybe it's financially or maybe it's through an act of service. If anyone forces you to go a mile, go two. For the second mile is called the freedom mile. The law was not designed as an attack on any physical body, but it was an attack on identity. It was designed to show people like the Jews who they belong to. I own you, so carry my stuff. But when they walked the second mile, they were reclaiming their identity. 
and saying in God's kingdom, I'll give you what you, what you asked for, and then I'll double it. And instead of becoming an act of oppression, it becomes an act of generosity. Lastly, give to those in need. Jesus was teaching about the kind of compassion and merciful justice that delivers the poor from poverty. It restores them into community. In a, uh, he was calling people to just like that walk. He was calling people to take back what society told them they were and instead live into what God told them they were. How many of us are stuck living who society thinks we are and struggle to live into what God says we are? If that's you this morning, I I just have a sense in my spirit that there are some people who are so oppressed by other people's opinion of you that it's really almost like blocks your ability to see yourself the way God sees you. You are chosen. You're a member of God's royal family. And nothing anybody says about you can take away God's love, compassion, purpose, desire, plan for you. I know it's really hard to not hear the noise of what other people say you are or what you say you are or what the mirror says you are or what the scale says you are or what the popular group at school says you are or what your boss says you are or what your spouse or what your ex or what your kids or what your parents. I, those are, there's tons of voices. You got to turn them down. And turn up the one that says you are chosen, you are a royal, you you bear the image of God. And there's no one he'd rather be with than you. All four of these illustrations focus on non-retaliation. They're very specific. How often is one backhanded on the right cheek or sued for their underwear or forced to carry a sol- uh, by a soldier to carry their gear? They're extreme. If one did as verse 40 advocates, one would stand naked in court. I'm uncomfortable. That's a practice that would be considered unacceptable by Jewish tradition. In fact, I can't think of a tradition that would accept that. These illustrations are a part of a series uh, whose, reflect, whose effect is to establish a pattern that can be extended to other circumstances. It's open-ended. The point they are making is that in the kingdom of heaven, self-interest does not rule. And even our legal rights and our legitimate expectations may have to give way to the interest of others. It's for each disciple to work out for themselves how these principles can be responsibly applied in the different personal and social circumstances we find ourselves. 
But the overall rule is Jesus is desiring to show the world a new way, and he's wanting to do that through us. God wants to partner with you to reveal himself to the world. It's been that way since he entered into covenant with Abraham and said, through you, I'm going to bless the whole world. Well, today, in the Lehigh Valley, in Warren County, in northwestern Jersey, and in Pennsylvania, this portion, Jesus is deciding to reveal himself to the world through the people sitting in this room and sitting over at the chapel or the Methodist church or the Presbyterian church. All of us together get to reflect God into a world that's totally darkness and struggles to see him. And God's saying in this moment, in this time, the the person I need to reveal myself to the world is you. How's that for a different voice? Do you pray with me? God, I thank you so much for how much you love us. I thank you that you've called us. I, God, it's hard to live out this idea, your idea of justice. It's different than what we know. We've been told we have rights. We've been taught to believe that we're supposed to have what we want. God, I I like having what I want, but help me to want what you want. In your name I pray, amen. I would like to transition a little differently this morning. And this is when pastors say, oh boy. That third chorus that we sang this morning was so special. And I've asked Dave if he would lead us just in the chorus. You don't have to stand. You can just worship from your seat. Worship a holy God. And the angels cried. Holy, all creation cries. Holy, you are lifted high. Holy, holy forever. And the angels cry. And the angels cry. It's always a privilege to be able to serve you, God's family, in communion. In many churches, when they identify this ritual part in their liturgy, use the phrase, holy communion. Why would it be called holy? 
What does it mean to be called holy? More often than not, biblical scholars define something to be holy because it's an ordinary thing that has been set aside for special use. For instance, the instruments that were designed for use in the tabernacle or the temple were called holy because they were ordinary tools or instruments that had been set aside for special and particular use in the temple. And we can apply the same description to the elements of bread and juice as holy because they've been set aside by those who have prepared this table for special use to commemorate, as St. Paul teaches us, Jesus' death. Thus, Holy Communion. But even more, we who have been saved by the atoning death of Jesus Christ and who are being sanctified by the Holy Spirit, we have been set aside by God for special use in this world. And so as you come forth to receive the elements this morning, thank God for setting you aside for special use and ask him to show you what your individual and special calling to kingdom service might be. We receive all things from him by grace and we give our lives back to him for whatever use he can make of us. If the elders or whoever is serving this morning, Gary, we would love for you to join us in communion. If uh, you're a visitor here this morning, we serve an open communion, which means you have a relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. We encourage you to come forth now and receive the elements. The splendor of the King Though in majesty
And so the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so, Lord Jesus, as we receive your body into our body, we also present our bodies to you as our reasonable worship, ready to do your will. Consecrate us for service to you. Shall we eat the bread together? And now join me in standing, if you may. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so, Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Thank you for the new covenant by which there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Shall we drink of the cup? Receive now the benediction. And may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace by your faith in him until by the power of the Holy Spirit you overflow with hope. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. Have a great week in service to him and see you on the Lord's Day.